Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today we are going to hear about the book Feminism Unmodified by Catherine McKinnon, being discussed by Cara Dansky and Sheila Jeffries. So um, over to you, Cara and Sheila. Thanks very much, Joe. Um, and this is a very important book, so I'm very pleased that I'm able to talk about it with Cara today. Uh, can we have my first photograph up, please? Right, now this is what Catherine McKinnon looked like in the decades over which I knew her and met her occasionally. Uh, and she usually wore suits, flat shoes, trouser suits, flat shoes. Um, and it seems though that she has changed recently. Could we have the next photograph please, Joe? So this is a, a photograph from uh, 2013 at the launch of the film Lovelace, uh, uh, which is about the um, porn actor, Alinda Lovelace. And she's completely feminized in this one, which is showing large uh, naked areas of body as like hint of cleavage. She will be depilated. She has got high heel shoes and so on. Quite extraordinary. I was just looking for a photograph of her online and I came across this and I was gobsmacked, quite honestly. I, I had no idea why she would suddenly look like this um, because, uh, and keep this picture in mind as we go through this um, session, um, this is, she is extremely gendered to the ground, as you might say here, even though in theory she's uh, very critical of these of the concept of gender, for instance, in her work. Okay, so that's, um, I will just stay on it for a moment whilst I'm, well, actually, let's take it off for a moment whilst I introduce who Catherine McKinnon was. So, yeah, thank you. So Catherine McKinnon was, is, um, she's a renowned US feminist legal theorist. Her father was a congressman, a district attorney and a judge. And she had something to live up to there. Um, and she certainly did. She became famous in the 1970s for her work on sexual harassment in her book, Sexual Harassment of Working Women in 1976. She, in that book, she provided a, a legal remedy for sexual harassment at work by characterizing it as sex discrimination, which was a recognized harm. In the 1980s, she developed a body of radical feminist legal theory, which was taken seriously in the male stream world in a way that was very different, very difficult usually for radical feminists. And indeed, we didn't have another radical feminist legal theorist, uh, anything like her. This theory was mostly created in speeches, and it's these that are gathered together in her second book, which is the one we're looking at today, and Feminism Unmodified Discourses on Life and Law is from 1988. In the early 1980s, she joined up with Andrea Dworkin to create a civil rights ordinance against pornography, which came near to being implemented in states which requested their help, but in the end it failed. When I lived in the US in 1985 to six, the campaigning for implementation of the ordinance was at its height, and many young and idealistic feminists and lesbian feminists were promoting the ordinance around the US, and I went to one of their events and got to know some of them. I also met up with Catherine for the first time, and she took me to a class she was taking at Harvard. 
In subsequent years, she published more books and collections on pornography and sexual violence. Mainly as a result of her alliance with Andrea Dworkin, her star shone brightly as a radical feminist theorist, and particularly as a feminist legal theorist. I loved her work, and I taught it at the University of Melbourne. Students complained that her writing was hard to understand, but I always told them that it was worth persevering because of what she had to say on sexuality, sexual violence, and pornography, and I hope I can make that clear today. So over to you, Cara. Thank you, and thanks for everyone who's here today. Uh, I want to say first that I completely sympathize with Sheila's students who complained that McKinnon is hard to understand because she is. Um, I completely agree, but I also agree with Sheila that it's worth persevering because of what McKinnon had to say on a number of topics. So I first encountered this book, Feminism Unmodified, during my senior year of college, a few years after it was published. The reason I remember it was my senior year is that I distinctly recall reading it at a table at the university library across from my boyfriend at the time and occasionally looking up to glare at him for being a man and therefore a member of the oppressor class. She, along with US scholar Marilyn Fry, who I was also reading at the time, is a huge part of why I'm a radical feminist and why I became a lawyer. As I was preparing for this discussion, I realized that most of the book could be described as McKinnon's assessment of how various US laws have and haven't worked for women as a sex class, which strikes me as a useful project, whatever one thinks of her assessments in the end. So back to you, Sheila, I think to talk about her use of the word gender. Yes, thank you, Cara. Now her use of the word gender is, uh, it's, it's very important to look at it, even though I think it's quite difficult to understand exactly what she means by it, it's quite confusing. It's important to look at because at the end, we'll talk about what her response is in terms, in relation to gender identity. Um, so at the time that she wrote the book, um, in 1988, uh, the term gender was not widely used in the UK feminism or in activist feminism in general. We tended to use the word sex and not gender. Um, and we used, used to use the, ter the term sex roles for those forms of behavior that were forced upon women on the basis of their sex, but were not based in biology. So generally, um, it, you, it meant one of two things. Um, it, it, and either those sex roles that were constructive behaviors or, and many academic feminists used it this way, it meant the relations of power between men and women, as in uh, gender violence, gender studies, and so on, in theory meant the relations of power between men and women. But it was already a confusing term at that time, and I think it always has been. It's particularly so, for instance, for UN work in countries where it did not occur in the languages of those countries. And sometimes um, even those who were called gender trainers didn't necessarily know what was meant by it in those countries where they were training the military and so on. And certainly I think the soldiers who were being trained by UN trainers had no idea what gender meant. 
So it was a confusing term, and it has been suggested that the main one of the main reasons it was adopted is that it's euphemistic. Um, it's no need to, re to refer to men and women or sexism or misogyny or any of those things. You can just call it all something called gender. Um, she doesn't, in this book, define what she means by gender, McKinnon. And I think it may be because it's a series of speeches, so she doesn't need to um, define it. But I'll give a couple of examples of her usage to show how puzzling it is, and we can try and think about what really is she, does she mean here. Can we have the, uh, the next slide, Joe? Right, so she says in this first quote, feminism is a theory about of how the erotization of dominance and submission creates gender, creates woman, and man in the social form in which we know them. Now, I agree that sexualized dominance and submission is hugely important in creating who women are, uh, who, how they're seen and used, and the social relations between men and women. But I think this may go too far. I think there is more to what a woman is than her sexual use, um, such as her ability to reproduce, for instance, uh, which is, of course, controlled under male domination by men. But McKinnon never mentions reproduction because she avoids any reference at all to biology in her work. And I find that um, really quite puzzling. So throughout the book, she avoids the word sex almost entirely. She doesn't mention biology except to keep stating that nothing she's saying has anything to do with biology. And this is a very different analysis from mine. I would argue that male domination is founded on biology, on the fact that men seek to exploit and control women's ability to reproduce. So, and also I wonder how male domination knows how to treat uh, um, women as women, how it recognizes women, if biology has nothing to do with it, as she seems to uh, believe. And then there's another statement here. She says, gender here is a matter of dominance, not difference. Now, um, uh, the, uh, uh, that makes sense to me. Uh, she, says, she says, sometimes people ask me, does that mean you think there's no difference between men and women? The only way I know how to answer that is, of course there is, the difference is that men have power and women do not. So I understand the difference between dominance and difference. Difference means uh, a difference between men and women, which is often uh, interpreted as biological. Women are supposed to behave in certain ways because of a difference between them. And she says gender is a matter of dominance, which is men rule and women are subordinate, um, which is fair enough. Um, and indeed, uh, I, I agree with her that gender is a hierarchy in the sense that there is a hierarchy between men and women. But there is a crucial difference between men and women, which is what I've just been explaining, which is biological. I don't think women are limited by their biology, but that men base their oppression on women on the need to control and use women biologically. Um, so let's go on to another strange uh, comment about um, gender. Joe, can we go to another slide?
That's not the one that I was expecting. So I think I need to just read out the one I was expecting. Can you take that down for a moment, Joe? Yeah. So another statement about um, men and women, she says, it has been suggested that men who experience feelings similar to those of women articulate as women may be expressing ways in which being on the bottom of hierarchies can produce similar feelings in people. The declassed status of student, for example, however temporary, makes a lot of men feel the way most women feel most of the time. That's it. Except that the men tend to feel it because they've fallen from something. There is nothing like femininity to dignify one's indignity as one's identity. So that what's puzzling about this is what she's trying to say is men are only men because they're dominant. You recognize them because they're the dominants, not because of biology. Women are only women because they're subordinates. You recognize them as subordinates, not because of their biology. So if men are put in a position of being subordinate, then they will feel like women because being a woman is feeling like you are subordinate. Uh, I think all of this is very questionable. Um, because, you know, as I would keep arguing, asking all the way along, how do you recognize what a woman is? How do you recognize the subordinates? Um, obviously, I would say you recognize them because they have female biology. But also, it's very puzzling because you know, why is a student about feeling subordinate? Um, and uh, 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 it could be said that that you know trivializes the situation of of women feeling subordinate because they might be feeling like a student. They've fallen from something. Men apparently, if they're going to be students, they've fallen from what uh, dominance, presumably dominance, because they were born with a penis and were treated as male all the way through. But we can't talk about biology, and because women don't fall from anything. Anyway, it's 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 a very confusing quote. Um, and I think it it is uh, a problem. So her her, her writing. Uh, can you take that one down, Joe? Her writing is often hard to make sense of because she's determined to downplay or ignore the biological difference between men and women. In the end, this means her work often doesn't make sense, and she seems to use gender sometimes in her work in different ways. What she does make clear is that biological sex is unimportant. But at the same time, she often talks about women as if she knows what a woman is and that a woman is different from a man in terms of more than just who is up and who is down. So it is quite confusing. OK, let's go on to Kara. OK, thank you. Joe, could we have my slides? <clears throat> So I'm going to talk a little bit about her analysis of the laws that uh, that second wave feminists put into place intending to benefit women as a sex class and her analysis as to whether or not they did. Uh, so her chapter on difference in dominance is mostly a critique of existing sex discrimination law, which she finds really lacking. I found this chapter to be extremely hard to understand, um, but mostly it's a critique of the idea that the law should treat women and men the same when we are the same and differently when we are different. So it was then lawyer Ruth Bader Ginsburg who had succeeded in persuading the Supreme Court back in 1971 that women are people under the constitution. And so 
I think that McKinnon is largely right that between 1971 and the 80s, when she's writing, the federal judiciary did focus on a framework that treated women and men the same when we are the same and differently when we're different. And I read in her discourse a critique of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legal approach, though I could be wrong about that. But McKinnon's key insight, I think, which I appreciate, comes at the end of the chapter, where she emphasizes that the case law on the topic of sex discrimination never gets around to naming the problems, which is the power and dominance of men as a sex class and the subordination of women as a sex class. Can we have the next slide, please? So this is what she says. Men are as different from women as women are from men, but socially the sexes are not equally powerful. If gender, and here's another confusing use of the word gender. I, I, I think she means sex here, but I don't know. As Sheila said, it's very hard to understand. If gender is an inequality first, constructed as a socially relevant differentiation in order to keep that inequality in place, then sex inequality questions are questions of systematic dominance of male supremacy. So her frustration with the existing approach, which is still with us, to sex discrimination law is that its focus on sameness and difference ignores questions of power and domination. Her argument is that instead of focusing on sameness and difference, the law should focus on domination. Can we have the next slide, please? She says, the difference approach is masculinist, although it can be expressed in a female voice. The dominance approach in that it sees the inequalities of the social world from the standpoint of the subordination of women to men is feminist. And I think this is an important insight. Part of what she's saying here is that the difference approach in the law by focusing on women and men as same when we're the same and different when we're different can be articulated and often is articulated by women. But actually approaching the law from the standpoint of domination is a feminist approach and I appreciate that. So I think at the end, this is her key insight. Once no amount of difference justifies treating women as subhuman, eliminating that is what equality law is for. So in the end, she wants the law to name the problem explicitly because she thinks that as long as sex discrimination law is framed as matters of sameness and difference, sex inequality will always remain. Can I have the next slide, please? So she ends the chapter by saying this, I say, give women equal power in social life. Let what we say matter. Then we will discourse on questions of morality. Take your foot off our necks, then we will hear in what tongue women speak. So long as sex equality is limited by sex difference, whether you like it or don't like it, whether you value it or seek to negate it, whether you stake it out as a grounds for feminism or occupy it as the terrain of misogyny, women will be born degraded and dying. We would settle for that equal protection of the laws under which one could be born, live and die in a country where protection is not a dirty word and equality is not a special privilege. So I take her to mean throughout this chapter, whatever on earth she means by the word gender, she wants the law to be better about naming the problem, which is men as a class having dominance over women as a class. And I think she's right on that point. US law for the most part does not name the problem. So I appreciate her contributions on that.
and I'll turn it back over to Sheila. Thanks, Cara. Can you put my next uh, slide up then, Joe? Uh, perhaps the next one, that's it. Uh, desire and power is what I'm looking for, maybe before. Desire and power. Yeah, that's it. I, I, oh, sorry, the order's a bit wonky. Um, okay, so what I find most um, exciting and I thought revolutionary about McKinnon's analysis was what she had to say on sexuality. And this is sort of the, the foundation of her work on sexuality. She was speaking here at a conference on Marxism. Uh, very many feminists, radical feminists at that time came from the left, came from Marxism. We were inspired to try and make an analysis of the situation of women by Marxist theory. Uh, but obviously the situation of women was extremely different. And this is how she explains the difference. She says, in my view, sexuality is to feminism what work is to Marxism. I mean that both sexuality and work focus on that which is most one's own. She's sort of quote, quoting Marx here and changing it. In each theory, you are made who you are by that which is taken away from you. Um, the social relations, uh, sorry, um, words here are wrong, but leave that out. In Marxist theory, we see society fundamentally constructed by the relations people form as they do and make those things that are needed to survive humanly. So work is the basis of Marxist theory. It creates the class system, creates the relations of dominance and submission of that society. So she says that what uh, in feminism, it's sexuality which creates that difference, which helps to explain, of course, why sexuality is so crucially important under male domination and why women are actually shaped to look in their whole appearance and the whole way they're expected to behave to sexually excite men. For instance, in the costume that she was wearing in the second picture that we looked at today, she is there absolutely constructed by sexuality in her relations to the society. So she says, a parallel argument is implicit in feminism. The molding, direction and expression of sexuality organizes society into two sexes, women and men. This division underlies the totality of social relations. It is as structural and pervasive as class in Marxist theory. Sexuality is the social process that creates, organizes, expresses, and directs desire. It is actually created by the social relations, the hierarchical social relations, as the organized appropriation of the work of some for the use of others defines the class, workers, the organized expropriation of the sexuality of some for the use of others defines the sex, the woman. Heterosexuality is its predominant structure. Now, I really like this analysis uh, because I, I do see sexuality as absolutely uh, fundamental to um, organizing the oppression of women. And of course, she sees sexuality as socially constructed, as do I. That does not mean that sexuality uh, in the terms of the possibility of feeling sexually attracted to another person is constructed. I, I understand that to be built in. But the way that that is expressed is hugely organized um, and created in order to 
create the social relations of male domination. And I do think that she's right about that. Um, can we move on to the sex and violence slideshow? Sorry, I've got them badly in order, but maybe we can, that's it, no, back, that's it. Okay, um, her, so her analysis from this understanding of sexuality, uh, which she takes um, with her to look at violence against women and sexual violence, and I think she's just extraordinarily good on this. She has very wonderful insights. She explains much about why sexual violence is not taken seriously, for instance. Um, she says the main reason is that the sexuality of male domination is constructed to be about dominance and submission. And that this is invisible because men make the rules and this is just seen as what sex is. And that really is fundamental for the construction of sexuality and social relations. The construction of sexuality is what makes it almost impossible to recognize a distinct difference between ordinary everyday sex and rape, for instance. And she's critical in these quotes we're going to look at, at the way in which many feminists who were involved in fighting rape and sexual violence in the 70s and the 80s um, liked to say that uh, the difference between rape and ordinary everyday sex, for instance, was that rape was about violence. So the forms of sexual interaction between men and women that were seen as unacceptable by feminists, many of them said were the forms that showed violence. They weren't about sex, they were about violence. And I think one of the most superb insights of McKinnon is that she says, you cannot make this a distinction. Um, so she, if we look at the first quote here, what I see to be the danger of the analysis, what makes it potentially co-optive is formulated it, formulating it, and it is formulated this way. These are issues of violence, not sex. Rape is a crime of violence, not sexuality. Sexual harassment is an abuse of power, not sexuality. Pornography is violence against women. It is not erotic. Although battering is not categorized so explicitly, it is usually treated as though there is nothing sexual about a man beating up a woman as long as it is with his fist. And I think that's quite interesting that she brings um, the, the beating up of women into this analysis as well. So she says, when a woman has been raped and it isn't sex, uh, then she cannot experience without connecting to that. It was her sexuality that was, she was, that was violated. She has a little story about a woman who was raped and then cannot then have sexual relations with her husband. If it wasn't about sex, if it was just about violence, then she wouldn't have problems with being sexual. But McKenna makes it very clear that actually it is sex to the woman, it is sex to the man. So though there may be violence involved in it, it is about violence. And what she sees this analysis that it's violence, not sex, as doing is protecting good sex, the ordinary sex, which cannot be seen as connected with the violence. But of course, it's impossible to, put, uh, to pin the tail on the donkey because ordinary everyday sex is constructed to be about dominant submission anyway. I think that's particularly clear in her analysis of sexual harassment. And she says here, for instance, the way the analysis of sexual harassment is sometimes expressed now, and it bothers me, is that it's an abuse of power, not sexuality. That does not allow us to pursue whether sexuality, as socially constructed in our society through gender roles, is itself a power structure. 
So when I used to teach this to students uh, in terms of sexual harassment not being something totally different from ordinary everyday sexuality, I would ask them to think about a, a, a female student sitting on a bench on the campus reading. She could be reading anything. And a man comes up to her and sits down beside her and says, what are you reading? Now, I understand that to be sexual harassment. And I wanted the students to understand it to be sexual harassment as well, because he assumes that he has the right to interrupt her. He assumes because of his power, the power relation that he has the right to sit down next to her. And sexual initiation is an, by men, not by women, um, is an ordinary part of the expression of dominance and submission in sexuality under male domination. It's so normal, nobody thinks that it's strange, but of course, why does any man have the right to go up to any woman and interrupt her at all? Um, and then I would sort of ask for a hands up from my students, do they now see this as sexual harassment or do they see it as sexual, sexual initiation? Most of them would say, yes, they now understood this as sexual harassment and they were furious about it, but some would still see it as uh, sexual initiation. So uh, she explains that this uh, form of behavior and indeed all forms of sexual advances by men um, are uh, should be seen in this way if, if they take, take this form um, as sexual harassment. Uh, but what she explains, and I think this is uh, very useful, is that Sexual harassment is only understood as being in a hierarchy. For instance, in the Me Too campaign, it's understood to be sexual harassment because the men who are doing it are so much more powerful than the women. But in a situation where the women and men, because gender cannot be seen to be a hierarchy, men are not seen as having power over women, where it's just a man and a woman, as in the bench situation, it cannot be seen as sexual harassment because there isn't a hierarchy there. There needs to be a hierarchy for sexual harassment to be understood, which is why we understand sexual harassment as something that happens at work. Uh, it can be a lecturer versus a student, a boss versus an employee, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, in my book, uh, Penal Imperialism, I explain that I think sexual harassment needs to be understood as happening in um, heterosexual relations. If a man in a, in a long-term heterosexual relationship bothers his wife and grabs at her in the shower, I understand that as sexual harassment because it's about a hierarchy, because the hierarchy is inevitable and it is there. The man has the right, otherwise he wouldn't have the right to be demanding sex and so on. Um, but sexual harassment of a of a husband to a wife simply wouldn't be understood. So I think this is a marvelous part of her um, uh, analysis. Um, could we have the next slide, Joe? Um, so just a couple of extra piece of points here. She says, I think we lie to women when we call it not power, when a woman is come on to by a man who is not her employer, not her teacher. So that's really just su summing up what I have to say what I've been saying. And then she says, it seems to me that we haven't talked very much about gender as a hierarchy, as a division of power in the way that's expressed and acted out primarily, I think, sexually. And this goes throughout the society, throughout relations, certainly in marriage and all heterosexual relations and so on. So the hierarchy is always there and that affects the way we're able to see what happens in those relationships. Um, now, I was going to talk a little bit about the um, pornography 
ordinance, but I think what I will do is go over to uh, Cara because I know she has quite a bit to say here and I might come back to it in the end if we have time. Cara. Thank you. Um, so I am gonna address <clears throat> two very specific legal constructs that she takes on. One has to do with privacy versus equality in the context of US abortion law and the other has to do with the legal application of sexual harassment law. But before I do that, I just want to say, <clears throat> uh, as to what Sheila was talking about, this articulation that McKinnon had, uh, really critiquing and criticizing the argument put forth by many feminists that rape is about violence, not sex. And Catherine McKinnon just flips that and says, well, that's absurd. Of course, rape is about sex and we cannot ignore the sexual hierarchy that really uh, changed my life because growing up in the 70s and 80s, I was always taught that rape is a crime of violence, not sex, which was the prevailing narrative. And McKinnon just flips that right around and says it's really dangerous to avoid naming it as a problem of sex. And I really appreciated um, her analysis on that. So I'll talk a little bit about U.S. abortion law and Roe v. Wade. But I also think I'll skip a little bit because, of course, we no longer have Roe v. Wade. Um, and then I can come back to it if we need to, but I want to be mindful of time. So, so in her chapter on privacy versus equality, she explains why she thinks that Roe v. Wade and the abortion discussion in general ended up with the right outcome, but for the wrong reasons. And I agree with her. So it's worth noting that Roe v. Wade was decided by seven male judges with two judges in dissent. And at the end of the day, its reasoning balanced the state's interest in protecting fetal life, which it did not even really question, against a doctor's interest in treating a patient. If you read the decision carefully, you can see that women, although were mentioned in the decision, were not the primary concern of the male judges who eventually issued the decision. So getting back to McKinnon's analysis, her main arguments are that abortion is inextricable from sexuality and that the Roe v. Wade decision should have centered on women's right to equality as opposed to privacy, which is what the decision centered on. Uh, could I have the slide that starts with page 93? I'm not sure where we are in that. Yeah. So her argument is that privacy doctrine reaffirms and reinforces what the feminist critique of sexuality criticizes, the public-private split. Uh, so the crux of the matter is this. In Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court grounded the right to abortion in privacy. The problem with that is that it allows us to ignore the very real social problem of male domination of women through the use of sex. Next slide, please. She sums it up, I think, quite nicely in saying liberals have supported the availability of the abortion choice as if the woman just happened on a fetus. Of course, women don't just happen on the fetus. Setting aside questions about pregnancy via parthenogenesis or IVF, which are beyond the scope of this discussion, women largely become pregnant after men ejaculate in them and the resulting sperm fertilizes an egg. Pregnancy, in other words, does not, for the most part, happen outside of heterosexual sex. So in this chapter, she includes some traditional 
radical feminist analysis of the conditions under which women agree to sex with men, including women's reluctance to interrupt sex, to say, insert a diaphragm, or horror of horrors, as she says, to express a lack of desire. But she does not, in this chapter, consider the conditions under which women find themselves in bed with men in the first place, by which I mean compulsory heterosexuality, a situation she does not even mention in the chapter, which I think is a huge oversight on her part. But she does a good job of examining male dominance and female subordination within the institution of heterosexuality and criticizing the conservatives who insist that women should not be able to obtain an abortion while maintaining that women must always make themselves sexually available to their male partners. So from there, she goes on to her critique of Roe v. Wade itself, um, which of course, I think it's clear that she supports women's right to abortion. The problem here is with the, the analysis of the Supreme Court in the Roe v. Wade decision. So her main critique of it is its reliance on the legal doctrine of privacy. And she compares it to a different case called Harris versus McRae, which was decided four years after Roe. And that case concerned something called the Hyde Amendment, which is still on the books and prohibits spending public federal money on abortions. So in the Harris case, the Supreme Court went the other way. And it decided that even though uh, Roe v. Wade guaranteed women's privacy right to abortion, uh, the government is under no obligation to provide funding for poor women who need abortions. So even though Roe v. Wade was good law, we had a situation where women with means were able to obtain abortions and women without them weren't. Now, of course, Roe v. Wade is gone. And McKinnon points out the hypocrisy of all of this and makes the important point that if women were actually considered human beings, we wouldn't be in this situation at all. I think her other really important critique of the use of the privacy doctrine to secure abortion rights is that privacy has not worked out well for women generally. Privacy has been used to justify all manner of atrocities in the home. Privacy is the basis for laws that allowed women to beat and rape their wives and children, for example. Her main point is that privacy, like most rights, is a men's right. She argues again that unless the laws on the books acknowledge the reality of male supremacy, it is just abstract to refer to rights as though they're universal, because they're not. Now, what I don't like about the chapter is that while it's clear that she opposes the use of the privacy doctrine to secure abortion rights, with which I agree, she doesn't offer an alternative. Now, I don't know what the alternative might be or, or why she doesn't offer one. It's possible that she offers an alternative in some other writing, or she may think there's no constitutional authority for securing abortion rights. I just don't know. I do know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued that Roe should have been based on equality doctrine rather than privacy doctrine. And I think that's probably right. Joe, can I have the next slide, slide beginning 102? So she says the right to privacy is a right of men to be let alone, to oppress women one at a time. It embodies and reflects the private sphere's existing definition of womanhood. This is an instance of liberalism called feminism. Liberalism applied to women as if we are persons gender neutral. 
It is at once an ideological division that lies about women's shared experience and that mystifies the unity among the spheres of women's violation. It's a very material division that keeps the private beyond public redress and depoliticizes women's subjection within it. It keeps some men out of the bedrooms of other men. And I think that last sentence is a really key insight. By this, of course, she means that the privacy doctrine keeps male government officials out of the bedrooms of men who subjugate women in the home. And I really appreciate um, that insight in her analysis of abortion. Okay, so just moving on to sexual harassment. Uh, so this is this is a good news chapter, at least in her view. She basically makes the case in this chapter by claiming that laws against sexual harassment at work and in school have actually worked. I think she thinks that these laws are some of the few that have actually worked for women as a class. It begins by noting that sexual harassment or men's exploitation of women for dominance and gain has always existed and that having laws against it framed according to women's actual experience is progress. Sheila mentioned um, her extraordinary work in actually establishing laws against sexual harassment in the first place. Can I have the slide beginning 103? So sexual harassment laws meant that for the first time, women were able to say out loud that a man injured her in the workplace or in the educational system and actually have someone do something about it. So she says sexual harassment, the event, was not invented by feminists. The perpetrators did that with no help from us. Sexual harassment, the legal claim, the idea that the law should see it the way the victims see it is definitely a feminist invention. Feminists first took women's experience seriously enough to uncover this problem and conceptualize it and pursue it legally. So in a sense, what she's saying is that laws prohibiting sexual harassment is a feminist victory. She also makes the valid point that in social systems where sexual harassment is illegal, it has also become much less socially acceptable. I think this is a bit contentious. I think there's an argument to be made that sexual harassment in work and in school has become a lot less sexual, socially acceptable than it was back in the 70s. I don't know if that's empirically true, but it certainly seems to me that there's been progress in this area. So she explains a few of the ways that men have attempted to escape responsibility for the harms their harassment of women causes. Apparently, men were arguing back then that men are simply biologically driven to harass women. Men actually tried to advance that as a defense in sex, um, sexual harassment cases, that it was their biology that drove them to harass women at work. But according to her, the courts rejected that argument, which is good. It made me laugh when I was reading about that. She also describes several cases where women have lost sexual harassment cases because of what she calls sexual credibility. That is how much credibility a woman has depending on her own sexual conduct. For example, can a man sexually harass a woman if she's previously had consensual, consensual intercourse with him? Can a man legally sexually harass a woman if she's previously had consensual intercourse with another man in the same workplace? So I'm skipping ahead a bit because I know we're running short on time, but I think she's she paid very close attention to sexual harassment cases that were going on in the courts. And she has a lot of really important insight 
into what goes on in these cases. And one theme that runs throughout the chapter is the humiliation by women who bring such claims. Uh, can I have the next slide? Yeah, so she says, how much sexual denigration will victims have to face to secure their right to be free from sexual denigration? A major part of the harm of sexual harassment is the public and private sexualization of a woman against her will. Forcing her to speak about her sexuality is a common part of this process, subjection to which leads women to seek relief through the courts. Victims who choose to complain know they will have to endure repeated verbalizations of the specific sexual abuse they complain about. They undertake this even though most experience it as an exacerbation of the original abuse. Next slide, please. For others, the necessity to repeat over and over the verbal insults, innuendos, and propositions to which they have been subjected leads them to decide that justice is not worth such indignity. But she ends on a positive note, and I'll just read this one. We can take the slide down. Women who want to resist their victimization with legal terms that imagine it is not inevitable can be given some chance, which is more than they had before. Law is not everything in this respect, but it is not nothing either. Perhaps the most important lesson is that the mountain can be moved. When we started, there was absolutely no judicial precedent for allowing a sex discrimination suit for sexual harassment. So again, even though the situation is not perfect for women in the workplace, at least in the context of improving women's lives in the law, using the law to prevent sexual harassment from happening and remedying it when it does happen, we've made some progress. And I think she does, um, she does deserve a lot of credit for getting laws in place that do give women a remedy uh, if they choose to seek it when they're sexually harassed at work or in education. I'll hand it back over to Sheila. Thanks, Cara. I agree that work of hers was really, really important. Um, and uh, or as is her analysis, which allows us to extend sexual harassment to understand it to be husband and wife as well, although, of course, there's no obvious legal remedy for that. But that just shows the problem of the whole way sex is constructed and constructs the relations between men and women, that there are no legal remedies for things such as that. Um, I might just very quickly go back to the pornography ordinance, which is, could you go look at my slides, Joe, and go, um, go for the next one? Our next one. Thank you. I, I won't spend long on this, but uh, another very important thing she did was to work with uh, with Andrea Dworkin when they were requested um, to produce an ordinance against pornography. Pornography was seen then as a harm in a way, of course, it absolutely isn't now. It's now absolutely everywhere. There's, uh, you know, there was the internet, there was the industry of pornography. At this time, I think pornography could be seen in a way that it's impossible to see it now. So it was possible to think that there should be legal remedies. This was a civil rights ordinance, meaning that it wasn't about, wasn't about censorship. It wasn't about deciding what was obscene and not acceptable. It was allowing a remedy for somebody who was hurt by the production or distribution of pornography to claim some right to be compensated. So it was quite specific and very interesting, very important at the time. And the definition I think is useful. They say, we define pornography as the graphic, sexually explicit subordination of women through pictures or words. Remember, there's words in there as well. 
that also includes women dehumanized as sexual objects, things or commodities, enjoying pain or humiliation or rape, being tied up, cut up, mutilated, bruised or physically hurt, in postures of sexual submission or civility or display, reduced to body parts, penetrated by objects or animals, or presented in scenarios of degradation, injury, torture, shown as filthy or inferior, bleeding, bruised, or hurt in a context that makes these conditions sexual. I mean, it, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a thorough definition, um, but I, th uh, I think we could probably go into it and talk about um, how these things would be recognized and, and so on. But it is a very useful goal at trying to explain pornography and uh, to, to give women some remedy against its harms. But if we just look at this next uh, quote, pornography is a practice of discrimination on the basis of sex. It is also sex discrimination because its victims, including men, are selected for victimization on the basis of their gender. But for their sex, they would not be so treated. I mean, it's interesting that sex and gender appear to be the same thing there, so that's very confusing anyway. Um, but uh, when I taught this and, and uh, thought about this and used uh, this ordinance in the classroom, I was worried about that because I don't think things are exactly the same for men. Um, and this could imply that they are the same. Men are in a position of dominance before because they're simply in the class of men. So they're in a different position in society before they're used sexually. I would, I'm not for a moment suggesting that not huge harms are not done to men and boys when they're used in prostitution and pornography, for instance. But I don't think it's like women. I don't think anything is like the situation of women. Um, and I think that goes for all the situations in which uh, McKinnon might actually say, like um, being taught in a classroom, for instance, or being in the situation of pornography. I don't think any of these things put men and boys into a situation that's exactly like women. OK, that's all I want to um, say uh, about that. And can we go back to my next slide, Joe? That. So I, um, we just want to talk at the end here about how she is on the gender identity debate. In 2014, I sent her the preface to my book, Gender Hurts, which is about transgenderism. And she wrote back to me on quick perusal of your preface. Just wanted to let you know that the writing I've read arguing that recognizing transgender rights in law are harmful to women's rights a completely speculative and without basis. Well, I was absolutely astonished because I'd set out my argument in the preface. It seemed to me that you know the most significant feminist legal theorist in the world should at least recognize there could be a problem there. But she just said, no, nope, ridiculous. Don't even think of it. Um, I don't know whether my preface to that book, because there was uh, not much discussion of transgenderism uh, publicly in feminism before that, might have been the first time she'd seen the argument set out. She obviously disagrees with it, completely disagrees with it. Um, and my question, of course, is whether that relates to the way she's confused gender and sex and used gender in the whole of her work. She was, has always been uh, determined to ignore biology. So maybe that's the reason why she was unable in the end to see, to face what I was saying in my explanation. It may well be that she had thought about it before uh, because she does say she's, you know, she's read about transgender rights in law and so on. Um, but certainly she 
uh, totally dismissed what I was saying. And then she says in a further email, because in that book, um, I talk about a situation in Canada um, where a female impersonator entered a, a women's refuge. And I think he actually raped two women um, in women's refuges. And the women were forced to share a room with this man. In other words, ignoring biology. Um, and she says in response to my bringing up this issue of rape, anyone can rape a woman and no one should be forced to share a room with anyone, especially someone with a history of assaulting women, which obviously at some point this person had. So I'm not sure what this case says or means. So basically she doesn't think that there's a reason to keep men out of women's refuges or women's spaces in general, because anyone can rape a woman. Actually in British law, that's not true. A person has to be a man and have a penis in order to rape a woman. That's what the law says. Feminists fought for that distinction and um, that's the way that the law was created back in the uh, 1980s. So yes, that was her response to me. Um, let's go on to, because since then in the last 10 years, she said many other things. By 2015, she'd fully aligned herself with the transgender activist cause and was being interviewed by transgender activists and saying um, how uh, she agreed with them and not feminists and so on. So um, let's take that one down and go on to Kara. So just on that, so, so here's what's interesting to me uh, about that, which is, so there's this case in the US called Bostock that was decided in 2020. And without going into too much about Bostock, it essentially ruled that a person who is transgender can be protected in employment law. And she did a webinar and I joined the webinar because I wanted to see what she had to say about it. And of course she defended it, but here's what was interesting. In, in the course of that, I asked her a question and the answer to the to my question was basically trans women are women. She said that in the webinar. So what was interesting about it is that when she is asked to talk about sex discrimination law, abortion law, sexual harassment law, when she's asked to discuss laws that pertain to women as a sex class or to gay rights law, she can rattle off case law history like no one else I've ever heard before. She can pinpoint case names. She can pinpoint pages. She can cite footnotes. She just rattles it off because it's all in her brain because she knows it so well. But when it comes to discussions about gender identity, she stumbles. She can't quite articulate her position beyond trans women or women. And so I'm not persuaded that she even believes herself. She's so um, she's so intelligent and articulate when she's talking about case law that pertains to women as a sex class, but she completely loses it when it comes to defending laws that protect people on the basis of so-called transgender status. And so I just, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what she actually thinks. I think she's being disingenuous, honestly, um, when when she says that she's fully on board with the with the trans train. I mean, I know that she is, but I also 
I, I just think she's being disingenuous. I, I just don't quite believe that in her heart of hearts, she believes what she's saying, but I don't know. I've never met her. I've never spoken with her and I can't speculate beyond that. That's all I've got to say on that. Thanks, Cara. Um, I think, and somebody has suggested in the chat that the, um, that what was happening in the 70s and 80s that so, is that some feminists were absolutely determined to ignore biology because biology was so firmly used to explain all sorts of other differences, like why women had to um, clean the toilet and wear makeup and, and so on and so on. Biology was always used as the basis for explaining the oppression of women. And so there were women who were determined to ignore biology. And I think Catherine McKinnon obviously was one of those. I mean, surprising because radical feminists generally uh, didn't do that. It was mostly socialist feminists who were most determined to ignore biology. Um, but radical feminists tended to notice that, that women um, had a reproductive system and, and so on. And that, I mean, how would you recognize who you're going to oppress? Who do you recognize? Who's that you're going to stand on if you don't recognize biology? I mean, it's really not really possible to do that. Um, a man would have to tell you, I'm in the subordinate class in order for you to know that he was somebody who was like a woman and so on and so on. So it doesn't make sense to me, um, but it's puzzling to me that I didn't actually recognize that at the time. I mean, it's only now that I'm starting to put things together and be able to understand why, why when uh, the transgender problem was, was raised for her, she was unable to go back on what obviously had been deeply important for her throughout her theory, throughout her life. She'd not really ever defined gender or really tried to work out what it meant, but suddenly she felt that she needed to support this new course. And indeed, in the last 10 years, she's made extraordinary statements about, you know, some of her best friends are, are, are transgender activists and uh, they're much better feminists than a lot of the feminists she knows. So she's really gone sort of fully on board with all of this. Um, okay, I think we are we're, we're nearly at the end of this. Anything, any other things you're you're wanting to say about this, Cara, about the whole thing? Um, I, I guess I would just say that I just think that she made extraordinary contributions, and also I'm sort of reminded by the thing that you were talking about, Sheila, when she talked about how men can sort of identify into a subordinate class. If they're if they're students, for example, right? You pointed out that section where she says that men who are students might feel that they are in a subordinate class. She was almost hinting at where we were going in terms of identifying into classes. I don't know if she was thinking about that at the time, but it's worrying. Yes, I think it is. When you go back, you can see where it came from. And yet until I sent her the preference to gender hurts, I thought she was absolutely amazing. And I've used her often in my writing because of her analysis of the crucial importance of sexuality and how there is no pure sexuality under male domination that is not potentially at one end of a spectrum of sexual violence because the very idea of what sex is under male domination is created through male dominance and women's subordination. But I think that I think probably then that's where we are. Okay, thanks very, very much, Cara. Been very interesting working with you. Thank you, Sheila. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone, indeed. Bye for now, folks.